service. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, Discos, I've got something special for you guys. You asked, we listened, and now it's finally here. Introducing Disgraceland All Access, our very first official membership program. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow Discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership and sign up today. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. Hey, heads up, guys. This episode, more than any other Disgraceland episode, is about sex. Casual sex, predatory sex, sex crimes, sexual glory, sexual confusion, and finally, backward attitudes towards sexuality. If sex and depictions of sex aren't your bag or trigger you in some way, then feel free to skip ahead. And if, on the other hand, you're a freak, then buckle up, you pervert. God save little Richard. The stories about little Richard are insane. As a rock star, he was fueled by angel dust and cocaine. The party was as endless as his manic energy. Backstage orgies were the norm. For Little Richard, sex was as formative in his early years as music was. Before becoming famous, he drove the streets of his hometown, Macon, Georgia, with a woman in the back seat of his car soliciting sex from random men. He orchestrated group sex in motels, dressing rooms, wherever, not so he could directly engage, but so he could sit back and watch and he always kept a Bible close by in case his conscience got the better of him. His conscience fueled his relationship with God, a relationship that would, at different times in his life, mean more to him than sex, drugs, rock and roll, or any of them combined. And when it came to rock and roll, Little Richard was both the king and the queen. During his reign, he made great music, some of the greatest music of all time, Earth-shattering, norm-rattling, genre-bending, fence-mending, soul-sending, sweet-saving, great rock and roll music. And that music you heard at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron, 
called Come On Diane. Sam was only kidding. MK2. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Honeycomb by Jimmy Rogers. And why would I play you that specific slice of wannabe Elvis cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on October 4th, 1957. And that was the day that Little Richard, moved by a fiery ball streaking across the sky, threw his $8,000 ring into the ocean and abandoned rock and roll, forsaking it for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On this episode, backstage orgies, prowling peep shows, fiery signs from God, and Little Richard. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. When Little Richard burst onto the charts in 1955, it seemed to happen overnight, out of nowhere. One day, he was nobody, and the next, he was known by everybody. He sounded like an overnight sensation, urgent, sudden, impishly confident. But it wasn't overnight. It took him a while. Years, actually. And he carefully crafted his image and unique style in true Frankensteinian fashion. From the church, he got the urge to testify and the guts to stand up in front of a large crowd, eager to receive the good word. Little Richard's rock and roll shows were sermons. He stood up at the piano. He wailed on the piano. He lifted his leg up on the stool and climbed on top of the piano. All the while, that steep pompadour dew stood rock solid, supported by the toothy grin beneath it. His pressed suit bone dry, his face wet with ecstasy. His gravelly yes, followed by breathless oohs, buoyant, weightless. His body went up the piano, his voice went up the scale, everything was up, 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 it was ecstatic. And it was repeated again and again for good measure. Whatever he needed to do to keep the crowd engaged, to take them there, to get them off. To that communal plateau of mind, body, and spirit. Yogis call it consciousness, squares call it church. However you describe it, Little Richard was a hypersexualized holy trinity, and he knew it. He knew he could sing, he knew he could entertain, and within seconds, his audiences knew it too. They felt it deep down in their soul. Didn't matter if they were white or black, it was pure transcendence, and you could dance to it. From the traveling medicine shows and vaudeville stages, he learned to unchain his inner queen and embrace his own idiosyncrasies. It didn't matter what anyone else thought. Little Richard didn't give a fuck. Little Richard was camp incarnate. The music wasn't the only thing that was amplified. His hair was bigger, his rings were gaudier, his perfect pencil mustache and mathematically cultivated eyebrows were as orchestrated as his song arrangements. On stage, he was handsome and he was beautiful, all at the same time. He was masculine, he was feminine, capes, headbands, frills, tassels, shirts adorned with tiny reflective mirrors, sleeves with dramatic flowery cuffs, ascots, feather headdresses, leather G-strings. The crowd allowed him to be flamboyant, to be over the top, because he owned it. It was an inextricable part of him. His outfit was as shocking as his voice. Pink shirt, leopard print lapels, big rings, the man was iconic from the jump. And the rest he learned from Mascarita. 
1950, Macon, Georgia. The Greyhound bus station off Route 80. Truckers on overnight shifts breaking from dodging way stations. Transients taking shelter from the gnaw of the night. Perverts prowling, hustlers hustling. The bus station has long been a safe house for clandestine encounters for those looking for some sort of sexual experience that deviated from what society at large deemed acceptable. And in 1950, there was a lot that society deemed unacceptable. Despite his conservative upbringing, Little Richard was looking for the unacceptable. He was 19. He'd grown up in Macon's church community. He sang at prayer meetings, old folks' homes, and church retreats with the tiny tots. He was a born performer. He spent a lot of his formative years looking in a mirror. He sang loud, wanted to impress, wanted to reach people. But there was more to performing than singing spirituals for gray-haireds and rocking chairs. As a teen, he got a taste of the flip side of the performing lifestyle when he joined traveling shows like the Tidy Jolly Steppers and the Broadway Follies. He wanted more than what Macon had to offer. He knew he had more than Macon could handle. On the road, he sang secular songs, even dressed in drag. And as exciting as it all was, as much as it allowed him to scratch that no-holds-barred performing itch that he had, he felt guilt, felt that what he was doing, what he wanted to do, was wrong. He was straying far from God, far from the church. In times of spiritual and psychological crisis, he relied on the voice of Angel in his head, a benevolent voice. Angel moved him closer to redemption, closer to cleanliness, away from the temptations that could pervert him. Temptations that a life traveling and singing on the road in juke joints and R&B clubs would lay bare. Angel's voice was the opposite of the voice of evil, a freaky, funky, far-out contradiction. Evil was a malevolent voice that led Richard down the path of selfish pleasure, a voice in his head that said, if it feels good, do it. He had the rest of his life to get right with God, Evil said. Right now, he owed it to himself to live the lifestyle that he wanted, the one that felt good, the life that felt right. Richard was torn, conflicted. From birth, he embodied both the desire to do what was expected of him, as well as the urge to follow his instincts. And the way he talked, the way he dressed, the strange things that turned him on. As a teen, he lacked confidence. Not the confidence to join up with a traveling show and wear a dress but the confidence to stay there in Macon and be like the rest, like the squares. So he took a job at the Macon Greyhound bus station where all those conflicted feelings of what was supposed to be right and what felt right clashed and co-mingled in the bathroom stalls on a nightly basis. He washed dishes in the greasy spoon kitchen and sang under his breath as the pots and pans banged out a makeshift rhythm in the sinks. After his shift, he would linger in the men's room for a while, so long even that he would lose track of how long he'd been in there, looking for feet underneath the stalls, looking over his shoulder toward the guy next to him at the urinal, looking for a subtle acknowledgement, a knowing nod, for an invitation to engage in the type of men's room encounter he yearned for but could never speak of. And then, off the bus, stepped Escarita. Escarita was a piano-playing teen, three years Richard's junior, touring with a traveling preacher and snake oil saleswoman named Sister Rosa. At this point, Escarita was still going by his given name, S.Q. Reader. When Richard first saw him, he was struck, a thunderbolt. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. All that sex, all that confidence, 
those blurred gender lines. One part Amazon, one part pinup, six feet tall. That mouth that stretched out wide, an effortless smile from ear to ear. Assassin specs, black, beautiful, chic, cool. Sex on fuego sent from the fiery depths of hell. Richard's jaw dropped, his heart pounded. He dropped the dish he was rinsing off into the sink. It crashed, water splattered up onto little Richard's pretty dumbstruck face. Richard stared out of the kitchen window at Escarita as he walked slowly down the steps of the bus and short paraded with ultimate sass into the restaurant, past the seats at the counter, straight into the kitchen, right up to the pretty little thing working the dirty little dish rag and slapped little Richard clean across the face. Escarita then pivoted abruptly on his Cuban heels and waltzed out of the kitchen. Little Richard was in love. In Escarita, Richard recognized a kindred spirit. Escarita read Devil's Workshop, Vaudeville, Chitlin, Kearney. Richard didn't know where, but he knew what. Escarita was in business, the business of show, showbiz, and black, young, and somehow experienced and gay to boot, obviously. Richard knew it was destined, knew they were supposed to cross paths. Angel or Evil had put Escarita on that bus, and it was Richard's duty to receive him. They talked, they bonded. Richard noticed Escarita's huge hands. His mind wandered. Escarita put them on a piano. Richard was lifted. Escarita began to sing. He wiggled his head as he did it, and Richard saw in Escarita an aspirational reflection of himself, what he could become. He saw his future in Escarita's rapturous face. He saw himself back on the road, a traveling man, singing that ass-shaking music unlike anyone else. Ironically, just like Escarita, he now knew what he'd look like, what he'd sound like. Even though Escarita was a few years younger, Richard had found his rock and roll teacher. He received a crash course, a crash course in piano playing, but also a crash course in how to become himself. Evil was in his head, she was loud, and she agreed. Evil was taking a ride on the pendulum, the one gauging Richard's conscience. Evil was straddling it like a young girl straddles a tire swing. Evil swung on that pendulum, far away from the right side of God, far away from Angel, and far away from what was deemed acceptable and polite make in society. Richard didn't care. He swung too, swung right out of town and into the big time, into the business of show just like Escarita, where he knew he could behave however the fuck he wanted to. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. 
For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Welcome back to Musicland Stories. Join us for a new aquatic season, exploring the sonic adventures of sea creatures from ghost crabs to octopodies, earworms to mazes of coral reef. Listen to the newest season of Musicland Stories, airing weekly every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon, aquatic adventurers. Captain out. People were always singing in Macon, Georgia. Music was everywhere. The town was alive with it. On paved streets, on dirt roads, on porches, on the tongues of residents in Macon's churches. Music was in the air. In the morning when the sun rose, promising another sweltering day, and at dusk when the gnats would come out and get caught up in the kudzu. Born in 1932, Richard Penniman grew up where the black and white neighborhoods overlapped in Macon. His father, Bud, ran a juke joint called the Tip In Inn. He also ran Moonshine, and the Penniman household, Bud and Leva May and their dozen kids, didn't want for much. As a young boy, Richard was different, in more ways than one. He was picked on mercilessly. He was born with one leg shorter than the other and thus ridiculed for the way he walked, long strides twisted up with short ones. He was born with one eye bigger than the other and with a giant head that bobbled atop his small frame. Kids teased him for that, too. He was effeminate and he talked more like a girl than a boy, and more fodder for the bullies. He powdered and perfumed his face in the bathroom mirror, and his classmates had a field day with that one, too. They called him names, called him Big Head, Freak, Sissy, F*** it. Richard's dad wasn't a fan of his son's effeminate ways. You're only half a son, he told Richard. My daddy had seven sons, and I wanted seven sons, but you fucked up that real good. Just by being born, Richard had already done something wrong. And then... There were the people in Macon who didn't ridicule Richard for the way he looked, or the way he walked, or the fact that he wasn't as manly as the next guy. Instead, they saw an impressionable young boy aching to fit in, and they saw a Mark, a vulnerable boy, a boy who would be easily persuaded. Richard was propositioned at an early age by older women from around Macon. They'd ask him prying questions, sexual questions. He'd tell them whatever he thought they wanted to hear, and then it would be on sex at the age of 16 with older adult women. And it wasn't just women. Men, white men, would pick Richard up along with other boys his age on the side of the road, drive them out into the woods, and force them to perform oral sex. The scene was entirely fucked up and completely dangerous. 
Richard was one of many who would get stopped by a couple of older men the locals called Madam Oop and Sis Henry. If you dilly-dallied long enough on your way home from school, Madam Oop or Sis Henry would catch up to you, waltzing through the streets, singing songs the way most Macon residents would, minding their own business. Madam Oop would pop out of the shadows, ask you what you were doing, ask you where you were going, tell you how nice you looked, ask you if you wanted to make a little money, wanted some quick cash. All you gotta do is follow Oop right over there into the bushes, into the woods, behind the gas station, wherever. Richard didn't like what came next, but money was hard to come by and make it. He'd go through the motions. Madame Oop pulled his shirt out out of his pants and then slowly lifted it up to show Richard the colostomy bag on his side. Too much had destroyed his turned his out into what Oop explained was something more akin to a floppy old than a working, functioning Biologically, it was useless, thus the colostomy bag, but sexually, well, the Lord taketh, but he do giveth, too. Oop may have no longer had an to with, but he did now have a to with. It was gross, insane even, the sex scene in Macon. And Richard wanted out of the freak show. He was failing in school and falling in with the wrong crowds. Scavenged by the likes of Madame Oop, he wanted to do right by God, get on the right side of Satan, be good, but feel good, too. He felt pulled by the evil, felt the whispers from evil blow against his ear. The only thing he enjoyed was singing with gospel groups in town. Richard loved singing. He sang at prayer meetings, sang on people's doorsteps, sang everywhere someone else wasn't already singing. So, when Dr. Hudson's medicine show came through Macon in 1948, selling snail oil and singing secular tunes, Richard saw an opportunity and jumped on board, joined the circus, as it were. Even if the real circus, in Richard's eyes, was Macon, he had to get away, and he was just 16. He played with the medicine show, got hooked up and sang with others, B. Brown and his orchestra, the Tidy Jolly Steppers, the L.J. Heath Show, the Broadway Follies. He joined a vaudeville show called Sugarfoot Sam from Alabama, put on a dress and heels, and performed as his alter ego, Princess LaVon. His performances soon led to attention from R&B DJs, and in 1951, at 18 years old, he found himself in the studio for the first time. His single, Taxi Blues, with every hour on the flip side, did well in both Macon and Atlanta. Locally, he was making a name for himself. But the brakes were pumped when Richard's father was shot and killed in the street. Gunned down outside the Tippin' Inn by Frank Tanner after an argument, Bud called Frank out on some bullshit, told him to take his big mouth outside. Bud didn't take any shit. Anyone can tell you that, especially his half-son, Richard. Bud followed Frank outside, and Bud was packing like he and many residents of Macon often were, like Frank Tanner was. Frank turned around and shot Bud dead, some real Wild West shit. Bud didn't even make it to the hospital. The rest of the details were fuzzy and there was no real investigation. Frank didn't serve much time. In the wake of his father's death, Richard looked to the Lord for guidance, but the Lord must have been busy. In the absence of any spiritual advice, Richard felt the pull of rhythm and blues. The music he had heard and sang on the road resonated in his head. And the absence of the Lord in his life created a void, and Richard filled it with the desire to make the kind of music that made people jump around. You know, devil's music. Richard was also filled with another desire, the kind of desire that goes hand in hand with that hot, sweaty, carnal music. A desire for flesh. A desire for the things he knew were wrong, but that made his head spin. 
so-called evil things. And Fanny, Richard's new friend, knew of such things. Richard was back in Macon, off the road to bury his father. Fanny was Richard's local partner in crime, his partner in kink. And Fanny knew what Richard liked. He liked to watch. And Fanny liked sex. A partnership was born. Richard talked about peeking and hiding and ducking back in the alley. Some real under-the-radar shit. He had a car. He'd drive around town, find guys who were ready and willing, and Fanny could freak with them in the back seat. Richard. Richard would just watch. They cruised Macon. Slow. In the early 1950s, at night, on the sidewalks and street corners, if you knew what you were looking for, it was easy to spot strange men looking for late night strange, looking for something they weren't going to get at home. And Richard had what they wanted, right in the back seat of his car. Richard was shift into neutral and coast over to the side of the road. The night so black and dead, all you could hear for blocks was the wind blowing, insects humming, trains whistling. Richard would pull over, slow, creep, catch the man on the corner's eye through the passenger window, make a gesture with his head towards the back seat, and the man would then walk to the rear passenger door, open it, and there, laying on the back seat, was Fanny. Legs spread, no panties on underneath her dress. The man would jump in, scramble to undo his belt while Fanny would reach up, pull his zipper down, and the car would lurch from side to side, parked and idling on the side of the road, while Fanny and the man got to know each other, biblically, and Richard, Richard would just watch, one hand on the wheel and the other, well, doing the devil's business. His neck craned to fully observe the action in the back seat of his own chauffeured fuckmobile. No money was exchanged. Fanny screwed strange men because little Richard told her to. Richard had that swag. He got cocky, wanted to double down. He drove the car to a gas station, did his thing and caught the attention of a man standing outside, made the gesture, the back seat, and the man beat a beeline to Richard's car. But Richard didn't notice that the gesture also caught the attention of the gas station clerk, who couldn't help but watch. He saw Richard's look, saw the back door open, saw Fanny on the back seat, legs spread wide, and the man climbed in on top of her and shut the door behind him. And the clerk slowly walked from the gas station like he was in a trance. He got closer and stole a glance through the back window, and the guy was going to town on top of the girl, and Richard was watching from the front seat. The car idled, it shook, and the clerk snapped too. His titillation gave way to shock, to a muffled gasp, to the need to do his civic duty and report what was surely all kinds of broken laws, not to mention a blatant affront to God himself. He ran back inside the gas station, picked up the phone. The car was still idling, still rocking when the blue lights flickered on behind Richard. The lights startled him, pulled him out of a self-contained world of sin. The cop wrapped his nightstick on the window and startled Richard even more. Fanny and the man in the back seat jumped. The guy popped the back door open, fell out of the car, and struggled to pull his pants on. Richard was out, hands up, turned himself around to face the vehicle and got the pat down. He was going to jail. After a few days behind bars, they told him to leave town. Just as Richard had felt the need to get out of Macon, Macon had felt the need to get Richard out of their community, and the feeling was mutual. Richard was cast out, and there was no going back. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Lloyd Price patted the ridges of his perfectly coiffed hair and told little Richard that Specialty Records was where it was at. 
especially needed someone like Little Richard, a cat who was cut above the norm, a cat who stood out and turned heads. Lloyd told Richard to send his demo straight to Art Roop in Los Angeles. Tell him Lloyd sent him. He patted his hair again, partly to make sure it was still as pretty as it was five minutes ago, partly to reinforce his star time image. Lloyd Price was a motherfucker of a musician, recording artist for specialty records, the voice behind the number one song, Lottie Miss Clotty, and he would daintily adjust his hair anytime he damn well pleased so you wouldn't forget it. But Richard wasn't thinking of Lloyd's hair. He had his own hair to think of. His hair would turn even more heads. But he was mostly thinking of Lloyd's recommendation. Richard was desperate to get on Specialty's roster, like a hungry dog that had grabbed hold of a big slab of meat and wouldn't let go until he could drag it away into a corner on his own. He wanted some. He knew that Specialty would want him too. Richard was used to being wanted. He had been grinding it out, playing his excitable R&B music to paying crowds all over the South. He made some sporadic recordings for RCA Victor and Peacock Records. He opened for Sister Rosetta Tharp and Little Johnny Taylor. He cut sides with Johnny Otis. Johnny Otis. Attraction was limited. When Lloyd Price played Macon and ran into the Little Richard performance juggernaut, Lloyd saw the greatness in Richard plain as day. He saw the Frankenstein pieces coalesced into one. The church zealot, the traveling medicine show freak, the Escarita-inspired virtuoso. Richard took Lloyd's advice and sent his demo up to specialty. For days, he didn't hear anything, and then weeks. He called, and they weren't interested. He waited some more, called again, still nothing. It wasn't until specialty got desperate, until they started to realize that they needed to compete with Atlantic Records and Ray Charles for a bigger slice of the R&B pie, that they decided to give the making kid a chance, and they returned Richard's calls. And from there, it was a blur. The label sent Richard to New Orleans. The guys from Fats Domino's band waited in the studio, a tiny room in the back of J&M Amusement Service, a jukebox operation in the French Quarter, 16 by 18 feet. Richard and the others packed like sardines in a tin, playing like they were trying to bust out of the room, tear its walls down, blow its roof off. They cut track after track after track, take after take, and the room was hot, sweltering. Richard played and sang like he was making up for lost time, like he had to get the music out, the ideas down, had the secret code to reinvent the wheel and he was gonna bring a room full of tempered New Orleans session men along with him whether they liked it or not. And Tutti Fruity was released first. It was a smash, peaked at number two on the R&B charts, crossed over to the pop charts where it made it to number 21. And the song sounded like an explosion. It had energy to spare. It all hinged on a line of lyrical nonsense that somehow made total sense. A wop baba loobop, a wop bam boom. Like most of Richard's songs, it was coded. It was a sex romp. He wrote what he knew. And it sold a million copies. Richard's live show was just as explosive as his recordings. With his band, The Upsetters, he did the upsetting. He stood up, moving, played the piano, but wouldn't be bound to it threw his clothes at the audience and women threw their panties right back at him. He played seven nights a week with the upsetters, sometimes up to three shows in one night. He had everyone's attention, sometimes too much attention. In Texas, the police stopped the show and arrested him on the spot. He had two strikes, long hair and the way he danced. The cops weren't gonna wait to see what the third strike was. As he dove deeper into rock and roll, it wasn't just the way he performed on stage that got him in trouble. Backstage, behind closed dressing room doors, Richard surrendered to the temptations of the flesh. 
and the kinkier the setup, the deeper the thrill. Before a show at the Brooklyn Paramount, Buddy Holly could smell the sex backstage before he even reached the dressing room. Richard had invited Buddy to visit before his set that night. We're going to have some fun tonight, Richard had promised. Richard said his girl, Angel, would be there. And that was all Buddy needed to hear. Buddy thought of her otherworldly dimensions, that breathy voice. Thought of all the things Angel would do for Richard on a moment's notice. And oh boy, Buddy Holly was ready teddy. And when he threw the dressing room door open, the three half-naked bodies were knotted up in such a way that Buddy couldn't tell where one body began and the other ended. Richard, Angel, and Larry Williams, specialty's latest self-proclaimed bad boy. Angel was living up to her reputation. At least the reputation little Richard was hanging her name on. And her full name was Lee Angel, but everyone just called her Angel. An exotic dancer, Angel had first caught Richard's eye because of her cartoonish build. He bragged about her 50-inch bust and 18-inch waist, curvy in all the right places, made his big toe shoot up in his boot. And she was still in high school when Richard met her, and he was 24. Angel would do whatever Richard asked her to. She'd have sex with other men while Richard watched. She'd have sex with other women while Richard watched. Sometimes, Richard would get involved. Other times, he'd just sit in the corner, lurk in the shadows, eyes wide, dick hard, Richard the watcher. But right now, he wasn't just a watcher. He was an active participant. The Pancake 31 makeup ran down his flushed face while a pair of hands ran up his thighs. Whose hands? Buddy couldn't tell. Larry Williams tagged out and Buddy Holly tagged in. He wasn't going to let a red-hot threesome pass him by before he was called to the stage. In these moments of sexual ecstasy, Richard would feel God pulling on him, pulling him out of the filthy pit of depravity he was so drawn to, and away from the carnal acts he felt compelled to perform and receive from an early age. He heard the familiar voice in his head and knew it was Angel, not the Angel who was sucking on his nipple in the dressing room, not Earth Angel, but another Angel, a heavenly Angel, an Angel who spoke to him in his times of spiritual and psychological crisis an angel who motioned him closer to redemption. But the voice of evil chimed in too and reminded him why he deserved to be twisted up with two other sweaty, naked bodies on the floor backstage at the Paramount. Little Richard is the greatest, evil told him. Little Richard is the king of rock and roll, the queen of rock and roll. And he was the holiest, the godliest, the freakiest, the deakiest. The voice of angel wouldn't be deterred. Richard had all but abandoned God, traded in a truly pious life for rough and tumble music and rough, tumbling sex. But Richard's angel wasn't deterred. She'd find another way to get through. And so it was, while headlining a tour of Australia with Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent, that little Richard stood at his piano at an outdoor show in Sydney and arched his neck towards the night sky. He saw a red streak burn through the air far above where he stood, knees bent and fingers hammering the ivory. Angel was out of his head now and was sending a harrowing message of death and destruction straight towards him. It would set fire to Sydney and to him, and it would all be his fault. He struck the piano so hard with his hands he wondered if his rings would shatter. He hit the piano harder to distract himself from the terror he felt, the imminent danger he knew he was in. He'd hurt himself just to make it all go away, but it wasn't going anywhere. He had to go somewhere. And that was it. He was done. He walked off that stage and he wouldn't go back. He asked Angel to tell God that this was it. This was the last show and begged her to stop sending him flaming balls of chaos and disorder. He'd end it tonight. To prove himself, 
He ran to the Sydney Harbor and threw his $8,000 ring in the water, left the tour with 10 days of shows remaining, half a million in canceled bookings, lawsuits, anger, outrage. He went back home, locked himself in a room with a Bible, and didn't talk to anyone. And the flaming red ball of fire that he saw burn up the night sky in Australia wasn't a sign from God. It was Sputnik, the Soviet satellite that had just been launched into space. But even if you told Little Richard the truth in the moment, he wouldn't have believed you, because he had been sent a message. He was reminded of the awesomeness of God and the vengefulness of God, should Richard give in to the earthly evil path made possible through rock and roll. They said he was dead, that he had taken his own life. Some said he had been committed, forced into the loony bin, and the rumors weren't true. But the ones where Little Richard got married to a woman and traveled the country preaching the word of God, those rumors were dead on. Five years, that's how long Little Richard lasted without rock and roll. He did the revival tent and seminary circuit, recorded gospel albums with Quincy Jones. But to cut rock and roll out of his life completely, that was a bit much. Everything in moderation, wasn't that the phrase? The true words to live by? Little by little in the mid-1960s, he came back, back to his throne, toured his own songs, hired and then fired Jimi Hendrix. By the end of the 60s, inspired partly by Jimi's fashion and style, he wanted to break the cycle of being his own touring impersonator. Little Richard wasn't no rehash of the same old shit. He was the real thing, brother, and he was going to get deeper into that rock and roll. And so, in 1969, at the Atlantic City Racetrack in Mays Landing, New Jersey, just weeks before Woodstock defined a generation, audiences witnessed the rebirth of the rock and roll savior, Little Richard. He told the crowd at the Atlantic City Pop Festival that he was the best thing to come out of Macon. Forget about Otis Redding, forget about James Brown. There was only one king. And then he proved it. He closed the festival like the royal supernova that he was. Zero residual 1950s kitsch. Two drummers in a horn section sent songs like Lucille into the jam band stratosphere. Tempos were furious. The interplay between musicians inspired. And Richard jumped from the top of the piano, ripped his mirrored shirt from his sweaty body, fell to his knees to testify. He was back, baby. But with a return to that rock and roll lifestyle meant a return to temptation, occupational hazards. Rock and roll meant sex, lots and lots of sex. And now, on his second pass through the music business in the late 60s and 70s, rock and roll also meant drugs. Not just weed, PCP, heroin, cocaine. Richard was way beyond bad and didn't even realize it. He was singing and screwing at a feverish pace. More concerning than the sex was his drug habit. Most days, he was so messed up he couldn't feel anything. Couldn't feel his bare feet on the shag carpet. Couldn't feel his hands run down a naked thigh. Couldn't feel enough to get hard. He was draining $1,000 a day on his drug habit. He went through money so fast that he had to borrow it. He hit up his friend Larry Williams, the singer-songwriter that Specialty had brought in when Richard threw his ring in the Sydney Harbor. Larry was just out of the slammer, having done time for drug dealing. It was working on a musical comeback of his own. But Larry loaned Richard a pretty penny. It wasn't just a drop in the bucket. It was the whole bucket. Larry came around to Richard's place looking for a general idea of when he could get repaid. 
He didn't get any answers. He only found a disoriented Richard wasted on his cash. Larry was fed up. He wanted answers. More importantly, he wanted his money back. Where's my fucking money, Richard? Richard said nothing, zonked. Larry pulled a 38 stub-nosed revolver from his jacket and pointed it directly at Richard's bare chest. Richard put his hands up, shook where he stood. The sweat beaded around his exquisite mustache. His pompadour, once a thing of windswept beauty, flopped over his forehead like a deflated wig. I swear to God, Richard, you sober your ass up and find me my goddamn money. Larry Williams was thundering now. He cocked the pistol for good measure. Richard heard the hammer pull back and fell to his knees. He, Little Richard, the originator, the king, the queen, he wrote the damn rules of rock and roll, and yet he had no money to show for it. Blame it on the drugs, blame it on the bad contracts, blame it on the lawsuits, blame it on the first time he walked away from it all at the height of his success, blame it on the times nobody was interested in Little Richard anymore. Even the voices of Angel and Evil had gone silent. He was coked up, alone, broke, and damn near close to getting his head shot off by Larry Williams. Richard was sure Larry would pull the trigger. Larry was fucking crazy. He had that look in his eyes. Richard had seen that look before. Seen it in the eyes of the men skulking for kicks on the streets of Macon, and the eyes of the women backstage who needed a thrill. Seen it in the eyes of Buddy Holly and other angel-dusted orgy-goers, desperate, sweaty, horned up. Larry Williams would pull the trigger, blow Richard's head wide open. Richard squeezed his eyes shut and waited for the shot, waited for the fatal clang of the pistol's hammer to deliver him from evil. A womp bop a bop a womp bam Richard opened his eyes. Larry Williams lowered the pistol to his side. Get me my money, Richard. Next time, only one of us walks out of here. The voice of Angel may have stopped talking to Richard, but she was showing him, showing him what would happen. Richard knew how close to death he was. Knew Larry Williams wasn't fucking around. Richard pulled the scratch together and repaid his debt, and then, once again, denounced rock and roll as the devil's music. Said it was demonic. Said it descended from voodoo. Said that it was voodoo. Pure evil. He called homosexuality a sickness. A sickness that he had suffered with from an early age. A disease that he had to cure. And there was no balancing the duality for Richard. He couldn't be gay and be godly. He couldn't sing Tutti Frutti on a Saturday night and then sing church hymns on a Sunday morning. It was one or the other, black or white, good or bad, angel or evil. Little Richard doesn't sing the devil music no more. And that is a disgrace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roller.